Kingdom. This is Judley Wheels Rothstein, straight from the Tar Heel State of North Carolina, coming at you live for our sixth episode of Hold the Fort. We wish all of our listeners a wonderful Memorial Day weekend filled with Frank's beans and bug juice. A special shout out to our former counselor friends who served in the armed forces and luckily get their love on Veterans Day and not on Memorial Day. As always, I am joined by a man who we want on that wall, a man who we need on that wall, my partner in the, in the trenches, who would certainly excel in any Top Gun dogfight, the dog himself, Stuart, Stu Dog Vitter. Doggy, doggy, doggy. Ruff, ruff, ruff. Doggy, doggy, doggy. Ruff, ruff, ruff. Doggy. Ruff. Doggy. Ruff. Doggy, doggy, doggy. Stu Dog, how are you doing down in Homa? Can you confirm for our listeners that having seen me play paintball on various big trips, I would definitely be celebrated on this Memorial Day had it been live ammo instead of paint? Without a question. And, you know, to reference, if I'm going to serve on that wall, uh, we are speaking with the the absolute epitome of a code red guy here with Judd. (laughs) Uh, Brought it to Wanaki Island. And has lived there uh, since his arrival with the Code Reds. Beautiful plans. Uh, you, uh, just like Scarface, Tony Montana, okay, when I saw you come out of those paintballs, you were littered with dozens of red, white, and blue paintballs. There's no way one single bullet would have taken you down. <laughs> Looked like a Jackson Pollock painting, I'm sure, when I came out of there. A little bit, yeah, next to the suit cam. <laughs> oh, good. Everything good with you, Doc? Everything's good. Winding down to school year. We have two weeks left um, and uh, the summer's coming up and uh, everything's fine. Love it. But I'll say this, boy, it is, you know, down here we get maybe two weeks of spring. And then here comes the heat and here comes the weather. And the weather usually comes out of the northwest. (laughs) And if there is anybody. Before, you know, where the radars and all were there, Wanaki, who knew that the weather was on its way, it was our next guest. That could not be more true, Stu. So I have the distinct pleasure this evening of introducing one of the absolute giants of Camp Wanaki history. His face would be on the Mount Rushmore of Wanaki greats, and his signature golf cart wouldn't be too far off in the distance. Need to know a fact about mosquitoes at the beginning of the summer? He would inform you that they were da Ernal. Need to brush up on your French? He would teach you that écouter was French for listen. Need to expand your palate during a summer of chicken fingers and chocolate milk? He would implore you to try the curry. Need to stay safe and avoid being hit by lightning on the upper fields? He would know that the storm was hitting five minutes beforehand and would get you back to the bunks. Need a whistled tune right before taps was played? He would get on the PA system and whistle this classic. (laughs) 
Need to feel insecure about the state of geopolitics and emerging terrorist groups? He would spin hypothetical scenarios about Iraqi commandos landing on the shores of Winaki, Takahoe, and Cedar. Need to keep the chafing to a minimum during a hot and sweaty summer? He would warn you about the dangers of Empatago and keep you safe. Need to stay out of harm's way during a late night canoe ride back to the island? He'd keep you along that shoreline so he wouldn't cut you in half. Need a steady hand, a father figure, a caring man, and a Wenaki historian all wrapped up in one? Then you need our next guest. He had 38 summers at Camp Wenaki, always returning back to Aiken, South Carolina. He was the island director from 1981 to 1999 and a huge role model to generations of campers. Please welcome the one and only George Spruill. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, George. Can you join us in an Oogie the Bonga with three Wenakis at the end? One, two, three. Oogie the Bonga. Oogie the Bonga. Oogie the Wonderful. In true George theatrical fashion. George, it is so great to have you on. Um, tell us a little bit, how, how are you doing? Excellent. I'm fine. I, uh, I don't walk around much anymore. I, I, I have a little problem with what you call post-polio syndrome, but my brain still works. Uh, doing pretty well, really. Oh, well, that, that is great to hear. And you know, George, I would love to know, and I think everyone would love to know, about your Wenaki origin story. How, how did you end up at Wenaki for your first summer back in 1962? <clears throat> uh, well, my sister, had, who was a good bit older than me, had worked at Robindale when she was a student at Florida State. And through friends of hers, I knew about the camping up there. And uh, a friend of hers who had come to teach at Aiken uh, was here. And we were sitting down at a restaurant, and she said, what are you going to do this summer? I said, I don't know. And she was the waterfront director at Robindale. So Robindale and Patty Feldman and contacted Doc, and there I go, walked to New Hampshire. When you but a man, 1962, with a man named Buddy Foy from Columbia, who was an old counselor at the time. I have no idea about Buddy since, but I rode up there with him. Like made the new woods moons ago, many moons. Well, I tell you, you didn't follow on your sister's path because if there's a, all the things I remember about George, one of the aspects would be the love of Clemson and the jacket he wore all summer. <laughs> he still wears the rings. I, still. I still wear the ring. I finished Clemson and I went to Georgia, so I've been around down here in colleges. Yeah, many times. So uh, going up there the first summer in 62, uh, going back to Aiken, you know, when did you know that Wenaki was going to be such a, a huge part of your life? Uh, was there a specific moment, a feeling, and how did the decision come to be after that first summer? I don't know, uh, Stu. I simply just it became part of my life. I'd get in my car and go to New Hampshire in the summertime. Uh, I arranged the rest of my life around it. Ended up teaching because of school, because of camp. Uh, 
guy named Phil Whitaker, who was way before your time, Stu Dog. Uh, he was teaching in Atlanta and came to visit me while I was in grad school at Georgia. And Liz, my wife, and I went over to uh, Dunwoody, Georgia. And I liked the school that, I, that Phil was working with, and I ended up teaching there. And then camp come in the summer times and school in the wintertime or grad school in the wintertime, both. So that was just, just evolved, Stu. Just like you, you were born into it. Well, my kids were too. Right. Yeah, it's true. It's it's interesting how many you think about it, you know, about you know, chicken and the egg as far as Wenaki counselor and then professional teacher. I think a lot of people falsely assume sometimes that that people join the teaching profession and look for summer jobs. I bet if we looked back at the Wenaki staff and kind of did an oral history, you would find just like your situation, and I know Stu and I are similar that we ended up becoming teachers because we wanted to have our summers free to work at Wenaki. That was really the impetus. Uh, and I'm sure you hired and, and worked with tons of counselors in the same situation, George. Well, Jared, I've never had an education class in my life. I was trained for the State Department. I've never, I've never been in a teaching course in, in college at all. Mm. And uh, I taught the private schools because they didn't want me to major in education. They wanted to major in what I was teaching. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically, I taught history, algebra, uh, French, chemistry. And those are the things you had to do when you went to school at Clemson in the 1960s. You had to take them all. Yeah. And yeah, I was. So I ended up not going into state department, but teaching just to keep state students. Wow. Huh. We always knew you were a Renaissance man, George. I didn't know you had all that under your belt. That's very impressive. <laughs> So, Renaissance man, huh? <laughs> <laughs> you make me feel old. Man. <laughs> oh, well, we, we thought you were alive during the Renaissance as well. But so, <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about what your time on the mainland was like? Um, kind of on the waterfront for all those summers from '62 up to 1980. Uh, what was it like on the mainland? Well, the, the part that I was involved with, of course, was the war. I was always down there, and Doc left me there. Doc was in charge, period. And um, it, he definitely had it that way. Uh, for example, Bart and John Holt taught sailing on my waterfront staff um, during the summers for that learning experience. And uh, Doc was a piece of work. I remember going down at my first hour in camp, they would, uh, drove in, and uh, I had never met Doc Silver, never been to New Hampshire, and there was some, a bunch of people down by the barge landing all the way down to the end of the beach, and there was a truck in the lake, and uh, buddy, the man I was with, drove down there, and Doc was in the lake, fussing and fussing around about the truck in the lake, and uh, I got out of buddy's car and the doctor came in and said, who are you? I said, Sproul, George. He said, a waterfront man, right? I said, yes, I am. He said, well, get your ass in the water. <laughs> Simple as that. And so I dropped my pants and got in the water and my boxer shorts and helped get that red truck out of the lake. <laughs> and that was my only experience with Doc. Wow. That was a quote, too. <laughs> I don't think anybody <laughs> knew Doc knew 
you would have said it was exactly that. <laughs> and, you know, George, having you on here, you know, with our previous guests, what the separation is the years that you had on both the mainland and the island, the experiences that, you know, you had from both uh, to really get the whole Wanaki experience. And when you think of Wanaki in the 60s and 70s, uh, before, you know, most of us were born, you know, what are some things that, that come to mind? And can you just tell us a little bit of what Kent was like all those years ago? Well, one of the things that was so strong was the fight for the Hanover Invitational Tournament. Mm. The, the baseball, in the waterfront, swimming, and uh, the, the softball team for the 15 and unders. Uh, they even had uniforms for them to go play at the Hanover Tournament in the in August. It was quite a quite an event. I've been over to Dartmouth every many times to go and watch the swimming events get through. It was a lot of fun, but it was something that was big at the time. Um other things that come up uh, just sitting there going through my head. Uh, The color war, of course, that was the other thing. I'm, I'm going down to your list just to make a uh, get I'm Good. <laughs> and uh, trying to just get things straight here. Uh, the color war was a big program in both, both island and male camps. I don't know whether you wanted me to get into those things like that. But I don't know yeah, yeah <laughs> no, we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. I mean, I'm, I'm even curious, George. You know, Stu had just mentioned it, it's so rare to have someone who had spent, I mean, in your case, it was equal time, 19 years on the mainland, 19 exactly. years on the island. How, how did you end up as the island director in 1981? And then you know, let's start with that. How, how did that come to be? Well, in, in that summer of before I went over there, um, we were talking about the island, me being a bunch of the councils and knew that things were not going well, that there was no leadership over there. They, they didn't have one person in charge. And I was asked Gary Island if I'd talk, and I said no. And uh, Bob and John were at the time taking over the camp, and they, they came to me and said, we need for you to go. And Ed Taylor was a good friend of Doc's and then a good friend of the camp. He was the accountant for Doc. And he looked at me and said, George, you're a waterfront director and you, you're getting older. You can't stay in that job. And then in a, a professional run like that as an older man. I said, well, you're probably right. And Bob and John and I met down at John's house and talked carefully about going to the island. They looked at me and said, well, we need you to volunteer. I said, okay. So um, I, I cornered Doc in the stock room behind the kitchen on the mainland. And I, he was sitting there unloading everything like he always did. And I said, Doc, I've changed my mind. I want to go to the island if you think I can handle it. And he looked at me and he said, in your sleep. I said, what sleep? <laughs> and that was, that was it. <laughs> wow. Yeah, we, we, we call that being voluntold what to do. <laughs> then, then, they, then they tried to make sure that they sweetened up with Liz, my, my wife. And uh, so Doc was very fond of Liz. And she had run his office for years. And she said, I want a bigger house. And Doc, Lenny, 
me and Liz went over to the island. Mm. And Doc said, what do you want, Liz? She said, I want a room the same size as the old house now. And Doc pasted off the bedroom side on that house. In the woods, there was shrub brush and everything else bigger than that. And he walked it off. And Elena looked at Liz and said, I know what you want, Liz. And that was it. He put the house up. Liz said, let's go. And we did. Wow. And, and my follow-up question on, on, that, on that, George, is just can you talk a little bit about what the experience meant to you during those 19 years at the helm as the Wenaki Island director? Well, it's a whole different world than the waterfront director. Uh, you're in charge, and uh, it's it's not just fun to go down and play on the water like I did on on the mainland. <laughs> Although there was the life and death part of the mainland, on, uh, you know that that just came with the job. Mm. And uh, but the island part was it was more like a real job, and uh, I thoroughly loved it. But involved with everything, the boys. If you notice that the island nurse sat right across the table from me at, at every meal. Mm -hmm. And that was one thing that I wanted to know Marcy, oh, not Marcy, Martha, Martha Bain. She and I would talk about each of the medical situation with the boys. It's just stuff you had to keep track of. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, it was always to give you a reason to go through the kitchen and snack food, too. <laughs> but uh, it, it gives you all kind of get away with that. But um, you're watching counselors teach, which was the big part of the island. And not just the waterfront. I stayed away from AC's world. That was his world. I knew what AC did for him. Yeah. And uh, the, uh, the baseball, soccer. I taught soccer here in Aiken for 25 years. And I knew what it was. Uh, so it, making sure that we got it done. That's why Al Smoles was such a key man because he knew how to organize those sport things. And mm. He was right there getting it done. And I knew that. All yeah. I had to do was make sure it was done. Uh, as, a, as, a, as, as a true leader does. <laughs> make sure it gets done. That's right. So George, you know, Colorado, the big, the big, you know, event at camp, the culminating event of every summer. What are some of your favorite memories of uh, Winocchi Color Wars? 1976, Bigfoot. No question. <laughs> <laughs> that might be the second Bigfoot we, answer we've gotten. Uh, <laughs> Doc looked at me. I said, Doc, he said, don't want you to be head counsel. I mean, I head judge. I said, you got to be kidding me. So um, I said, well, I'm going to spook him, Doc. He said, no, you can't. <laughs> And I said, I think I can. He said, no, you can't. And a few other words that I needed on publication. <laughs> but um, we'll X those out. But, uh, Bigfoot was fun. The only camper at the time that I was concerned about uh, was a young boy who was fairly ill, and I didn't want to spook him. But he was old enough and mature enough at the time for me to tell him that I was going to play games with your mind. And he understood that. And I let him know what I was going to do. And he kept it secret. He did a fine job. I'm not going to call the man because there's no need. But he, um, uh, he, he stayed with me. 
and they quit work. Just, just everything that came together did. And, uh, <laughs> Andy Hammond was a counselor for, at, at the time up there. And just a couple of years ago, he came through Egan, and, uh, which is where I live now. And he uh, made a comment about uh, Cold War breaks. He said that was something that's, that he remembered carefully. It was quite a positive thing. But Doc, Doc said you'll never get away with it. And I did, I did work. Hmm. It was fun. Yeah. It's amazing, right? I mean, 40, going on 45 years and... You know, I, I can hear in your voice just the, you know, the delight you can get out of remembering those experiences. And uh, it's, it's been a real wonderful experience for us to listen to a lot of the old memories and a lot of the old color war breaks and the shenanigans that were going on. And uh, no shenanigans, that's right. Oh, nothing, nothing but. So, George, what we have coming at you right now are five very quick and fun Wanaki related questions and we'll just keep them fun we'll keep them we'll, yeah we'll keep them fun um here's the first one you just mentioned uh the snacks that you like to find in the mess hall from time to time let's talk about camp food for a second what was your favorite meal at Wanaki yeah, well Sunday night was always turkey mm. and uh I always liked the, what I call the oyster, because there were humongous turkeys on the island. There were only two and a half turkeys needed to feed the whole camp. And they, were, they filled the whole oven. And the oyster was that piece of brown meat right above the thigh on the back of a turkey. And it's the tenderest, juiciest part of a turkey to my, to my brain. And that was always fun to eat. I told you the story about the, putting the turkey, the, uh, Asparagus on Joe Mark, but he deserved that. <laughs> he yeah. did deserve that. Oh, some yeah, good good pranks. All right, I'll let Stu give the, number two. Number two, what was your favorite Call of War event to watch? Round the base three lane. Mm. That's a popular choice on that question. No question about it. As a matter of fact, uh, I'm sitting here with Walker, my, my son, those of you who don't know. And when he was a camper on the island, I was standing on third base. He just said third base. And uh, just to help him, you know, with the coverage. And uh, he came by me and he, said, he made the statement said, like you, Dad, no legs. True <laughs> 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 story. All right, here we go. Question number three. So, George, after all those summers with predominantly Jewish campers, what is your best attempt? at speaking Hebrew. I can I thought we had him speechless for a second there. You're a man you're a man now, George. You're a man. <laughs> uh, George, uh, you know, 38 summers, a lot of them on the water. What was your favorite view at Lenaki? Hey, that's hard to call. Um, I, I did this on a film one time when they were doing a promotional film for the island. 
and I was watching the sunset behind the softball diamond on the island. Mm. Yeah. And had a videotape going at the time, and I was running my mouth as usual. And um, the sun was setting over Bar Harbor, and then over the area that Plumfield used to use for a ski range out there. And uh, I recited the, the, the poem about Sailor's Delight with the sunrise. Uh, uh, red sky at night. Red sky at night. Sailor's Delight. Red sky at morning. Sailor's Day morning. And uh, that view behind that backstop mm. is, a, is quite a shot. Also from the mainland waterfront, looking down toward Pier 19, and then back up to Mount Shaw. Old summer, quite, quite something to enjoy. Yeah, those are spectacular. And uh, last question, George. Favorite Wenaki color? Is it buff or is it blue for you? I was always a buff man. Mm -hmm. Can picture you in that buff shirt. Wow. Always a buff man. And then they made me change it on the film. The uh, buff didn't work with the sunlight. The it was a professional uh, photographer doing the, the film for the camp. And I had a buff shirt on, uh, buffing, believe it or not, I don't khaki pants. We can't, I know you can't believe that. <laughs> but um, <laughs> they, uh, I had on a buff shirt, and the guy that was directing the film shot said, can you put on a dark shirt? And I went in and put on a blue shirt. And, uh, and you know, the color buff is... is uh, a Revolutionary War color. That, uh, it wasn't really yellow. It mm. was the deer hide that they used for the pinstripe on the jackets. That was above. Wow. And that's enough story. No, oh. ever the historian. I love it. So, so George, when you think about Island Pride, what what comes to mind for you, and and why do you think Island Pride was such a huge part of the Wanaki Island experience for campers and counselors? One, it, it, it indicates that there are two camps there, deliberately so. One for a younger kid, uh, 6 to 12, mainly kid. And then for for a boy, a boy who's, let's face it, adolescent, mm -hmm. going, through, going through those dread words, puberty, mm. and on the island, and the island bride. And there's two different worlds, and you've got to be handled two different ways. It's a, a whole different world to deal with a 12 or 11 year old boy than to deal with a 13 year old boy. Okay, somebody's got to remember that when you're trying to do it. That's what I remember about Island Pride, a different camp. That's mm -hmm. oh, so true. And, you know, George, you know, after all that time, what were some, we've talked about color war around the base relay and, and you know, the bigger. The bigger things. What were some of the little things during the summers that you enjoyed most about camp? I was talking to Walker. Stu, talk again, please. Uh, we were just talking about color war and uh, around the base relay, just some of the bigger events at camp. What were some of the little things uh, that you enjoyed each summer? The little things that I enjoyed each summer. I assume that's a that's tough. I know, you know, 
you're coming up there, you know, seeing the returning guys, um, you know, the, just the inner camps, you know, final campfire, which is a big event. But, uh, you know, some of those things that were repetitive, you know, each and every summer, um, you know, I spoke last, the last podcast or so, you know, when we would head into camp and, you know, it got to a point year after year seeing this, the, the same familiar faces, it, it, everybody becomes, you know, it's part of the family. You know, George is going to be there. You know, Walker is going to be running around um, and then things like that. God help on that, though. Yeah, oh, yeah. Or looking up into the trees. Amen. Or listening to the PD system on the mainland saying, Sproul, Sobel, and Bitter, come to the office. <laughs> that happened. True story. <laughs> the three of them were camped out in Lenny Blaston's wife's kitchen eating cookies. When? <laughs> when they were supposed to be on the mainland soccer field. Well, I, I could hit a PA system because somebody had panicked because of the three names that were being announced. Sproul, Sobel, and Vitter come to the office. Well, that Gavin Vitter guy loved his cookies. Uh, no, it wasn't Gavin. It was Studo. I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was Gavin. The truth was shall Gavin. set you free. That's it. I just, I just tried to sneak away for a Pepsi with Joe Marino. I didn't go after cookies. But the three of the three of them had camped out with uh, Doc Placed, that was their name, in her kitchen. They snuck up from at that time it was a new soccer field on the mainland. The cross field? The way up yeah. the last little they had snuck up from that field to the place to the house. And we're eating cookies with Doc. Many moons ago. <laughs> they were about seven. Many moons, many moons. Oh, that's just, that's great, George. So what we have right now is a new feature uh, that we debuted last episode, and it's called Winocchi Recollections. These are a couple pieces from former campers and counselors who wanted to express their appreciation, gratitude for their relationship with you and really be able to articulate what you meant to Winocchi over the years. So here's the first one. As young boys... When we are away at camp, our counselors and administrators acted as our surrogate parents. Nobody fulfilled this dynamic role better than George Spruill. In grade school, my father cut a larger-than-life figure who seemed to lead our family from afar, leaving for work before I woke up in the morning and returning after I went to bed. On the weekends, he would coach me in baseball and soccer, but I saw him through distant eyes, much as my teammates might have. George on the island was like this on my journey from bunk five through bunk 27. He ruled a foreign exotic world filled with people and activities I was too young to know and could only look to from afar. When I reached my teen years, I got the opportunity to better know my dad. Still a guiding figure of authority, he had now become a real person. On the island, I had three years with George as my summer father, who with a gentle yet firm hand helped in ways small and large to mold me into the man I would become. When I had the opportunity to come back to the island as a young adult of 23, George was my boss, but also in some ways a co-conspirator. As with my father, I was no longer absolutely beholden to him. I had the leeway to make my own decisions, influenced by two men I loved and respected. As my summers working on the island stretched out, George's role in my life settled into that of friend, 
much as my father is to me today. I'm proud and honored to consider George Sproul my friend. One of many vivid memories, George is a born Southern storyteller. The story always got the better in the retelling and there was no better stage from which to tell a story than his golf cart. One day he was holding court on the sideline of an intercamp soccer game when he told the group of boys sitting on and around the court about an earlier game which he had attended. It seemed one of the boys on the opposing team's last name was Nadler, yet went by the nickname of Nads. George turned to us and said, his coach was on the sideline the whole game yelling, go Nads, go Nads, go Nads. We all had a laugh except for the one boy for whom this joke was just over his head. George turned to him and exclaimed, don't you get it? Go Nads. It's your testicles, son. I have such great memories of my time with you, George. Thank you for your friendship and everything you did for Camp Winocchi over the years. This letter is from former camper from 1982 to 1988, former counselor 1996, 97, and 2003, and current Winocchi parent of two campers, Marty Millman. And Stu has a second. Stu has a second one for you, George. The next one. Cam Winocchi has such a special place in my heart. It's where I grew up. It's where I learned to be independent, develop friendship with kids from all over the country, to play European team handball, to wear mesh lacrosse jerseys to socials, and love lake life. Both the mainland and the island are second homes to me, with the fondest of memories. To continue the tradition, my son, uh, excuse me, to contribute, my son Luke will be attending Winocchi as a nine-year-old this summer. For what I know will be a lifetime experience. A huge part of my experience on the island was interacting with the counselors and the staff, Al, Mario, AC, and of course, George. George had this amazing ability to be so incredibly tough and caring at the same time. You did not want to mess with George. I have these amazing memories of him riding the golf cart all over camp, fireside chats when I was in bunk A at his cabin, and most vividly, him whistling into the loudspeaker and saying, it's hot, everyone in the water. And he was right, it was hot, and we should have been in the water. We all listened. George loved Winarchy, and Winarchy loved George. He left an indelible mark on me and countless campers. George, you the man. Hold the fort, IP. Yours truly, Winarchy Camper from 1985 to 1991. Skipper Bam, 1991. Adam Levy. So really appreciate Marty and Adam. George, they both wanted to express their gratitude and uh, and talk about their, their friendship with you and, and appreciation for you. Um, so that meant a lot to them to be able to do that for you. So I'll wrap up with one question for you, George kind of listening to Marty and Adam and just thinking about the Wenaki community and your relationships. Can you tell us what the Wenaki community and these relationships with former campers and counselors has meant to you over all of these years? Basically, it shaped my life. It really did. It still does. Um, my whole career, both winter and summer, been shaped around Wenaki. I'm so, and camps is 
Go ahead. That's what he's got. Yeah. No, I mean, and, 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 and I would say, George, you know, you talk about how these experiences shaped you. I, I, I think it's so important for us to be able to let you know the impact you had on our lives as both boys and then young adults and, and the opportunity to work with you as well. I'll tell you when I was 14 years old, you know, you had put your hand on my shoulder and, and asked me to, to lead some tours for prospective campers. And you really instilled in me a love for Wanaki and a confidence in myself. And you believed in me uh, at a young age and saw my passion and love for Wanaki and helped cultivate it. And I came back and you ensured in 1997, I remember talking to you that I would be on the island with you in 1997 for my first summer. And then one short year later, I remember you catching me and telling me that I was going to be a color war leader. And as a newly minted 20 year old to have you believe in me and to be able to go up against one of my great friends and Wenaki legend, John Gershman in that color war, it meant the world to me. It was a, it was a, a life changing experience. And it all happened because you saw something in me and you believed in me. And I wanted to make you proud and wanted to, do right by Wenaki and the traditions that you had fostered for so long. And I know that I was just one of countless campers who had similar experiences with you and around you. So as we get to the end of this episode, not only do I want to thank you for spending the time with us and sharing your stories and teaching us a bunch of things that we hadn't known about both you and Wenaki, but really just say thank you for your friendship and for your mentoring and for your belief in us as kids and in Wanaki as an institution. So thank you so much. I'll send, I'll give it to Stu before we sign off. Well, George, I just, you know, as I mentioned earlier, all the, the summer spent together and how it truly became uh, a part of our family. I'm with the vetters and the sprules and, and I thank you for, help raising me and I thank you for nurturing me through my camping years and at times on those my island years pulling me in a shotgun of the golf cart to give me some tidbits of advice and I thank you for guiding me and again advising me there as I came back to be a counselor and instilling in me you know several things that Judd mentioned earlier one of them being if you're negligent you're liable and if you're liable you're negligent and for just being uh, a very uh, formidable person uh, in both myself and Gavin's lives. And I thank you. And I am happy to say, George, that I never had empatago during all those summers as a camper and counselor. I've got you to thank for that. He also never tried the curd. <laughs> so we're going to sign off for another great episode with our little theme. Adonai. Koala. So hold the fort, for we are coming, loyal sons of Winaki. Side by side, we battle onward, on to victory. In the words of former Winaki camp doctor, Dr. Dre, until the next episode, IP, MP, C-dubs, hold the fort.